Well, here we are again, August 26, this is our 37th lesson from the Gospel of Matthew, and last week we looked at chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17, didn't get, didn't get any further than that one verse which uh, speaks to us, uh, Christ on words, talking about the fact that He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, that's not why He had come. Of course, he was accused of that from a number of different directions. But he didn't come to abolish, we looked at. He came to fulfill. He came to fulfill, and indeed he did that. We take these, uh, that verse and the next three verses as, as kind of a, a package deal here to look at. But as I sat down and began pulling information, <coughs> you know, it's a ton of information. I mean, you're talking about the Word of God. The, the preeminence of God's Word to begin with that we looked at, um, or we'll look at today. So many different aspects of the Word of God. That is a huge, huge topic. And the best we'll be able to do, no matter how far we go, it seems, is to tread across the top of it and bring out some information that I trust will encourage us today as we look specifically at the preeminence of, of Scripture. And uh, because we're going to look at the next verse, and, and I'll read it for you from Matthew 5.18, where Christ says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. I can't imagine how perhaps confusing that might have been to some of the onlooking or listening Jews' religious community who heard that perhaps at some time because they had been looking at what Christ was and wasn't doing, particularly as it pertains to observing the, the Sabbath and rules about you know, work and sacrifice and ritual and all those things. They, they found him to be guilty. They thought that he was deviating from what, in their mind, they considered to be the law. And you remember last week we talked about uh, it was common in that day among the Jews when they said the law, they were most often talking about all those rules and regulations that they had put upon the actual law of God, the law of the prophets, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, primarily the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So Christ knew that and he was dealing with that. But the Jews of that day had supplanted the law with tradition. Tradition dominated during that time. And Christ had to work through all of that. We talked about how later in Matthew 23, he talked specifically how you observe these little minute details, which in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if that's a reflection of your, you know, uh, your desire to worship and to present yourself for God before God, but he said you've neglected the weightier things, the things of the heart, the things that affect other people. You've neglected those things. And he encouraged them not to do that. So not being able to keep, as it were, the law of Moses and the prophets, they knew they couldn't do that. They knew that no person could be perfect in keeping the law that resulted in them coming up with other interpretations of the law. And then you find all this other ritual worship coming into place. And the bottom line is, all that occurred just to satisfy their conscience. Just so they could say that they were in compliance. In compliance. You know, Paul goes into a liturgy there about, 
you know, he refers to himself in his former life in that light. He says, according to the law, blameless. Well, he knows in his heart he's not blameless. But according to those rules and regulations that were set out, he considered himself blameless. And the problem with that is that a person who feels that way has no need for grace. They have no need to pursue grace. And they really don't have an inclination to pursue grace with somebody else. Why? Because they've not experienced it themselves. And that's the first and foremost requirement. So what you have that comes out of that is simply this system that we know, a system of works, a system of merit. In fact, when they talk about, they being the the Jewish leadership, when they talk about repentance, that's what they were talking about. You see it clearly when you look at the story of the, the prodigal son and what Jesus tries to bring out there. You know, that that kid there, they would have taken that kid if he had to come back like Christ was talking about there in the parable, they would have kept him outside of the city. He wouldn't have been able to come back in because of the atrocities that he had created. He had disrespected uh, the law of God. He had disrespected Israel. He had disrespected his family. In fact, if you go back and look at that from a cultural perspective, what he would have gotten would have been a slap across the face. Maybe brought in in some extremely subservient role within the family. Not able to make eye contact with his father. That culture would have been prohibited. And then maybe creep back into some sort of acceptance within the family. Perhaps as a, a slave or whatever. Well, that's not grace. That's not grace at all. Nothing that deals with merit or our system of works. So what they have, frankly, is of course a new religion. That's what it was, obviously. In 1 Corinthians 10.20, you see some details there as it pertains to the religion of of the Gentiles where Paul says that any of that, he said when they go through and they perform these rituals, and I'm talking about Gentiles now, he said they're sacrificing to demons. That's what he says there. 1 Corinthians 10.20. It's no less true here with uh, the Jews as they set up some other system of works and of merit in their mind to make themselves acceptable to God. And the point is, this is always the case, whether you're Jew or Gentile. If it's apart from what God has already designed and set up, you're sacrificing to demons. There's, it's one or the other. You can't come down on this on, on, in the middle. You're either on one side or the other. Christ would, of course, confirm that with His own words. Who'd you call? <laughs> uh, uh, it's interesting, though, that with the man-made traditions and rules, that they're very difficult to keep, but they are possible. So it really breeds self-righteousness and a pride because those who are able to keep it are definitely able to look down on those who not. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly, uh, you see that very often with with the Jews. You see that. It says plainly that they despise what is it, Luke 18, I think? They looked down. They considered themselves righteous and they despised others. It's literally a part of that that verse there right before he talks about the, the publican and the guy who came up to pray. Yeah, it follows, doesn't it? It seems to follow. It, it breeds that kind of attitude. And if we ever forget, let's just let's explore this a minute. If we ever forget uh, just how destitute we are, just how lost we are 
apart from the wonderful grace of God. We open ourselves up for all kinds of difficulty. We must always, even in our service, we must always present ourselves to Him. He will lift us up, it says. Don't, don't, don't think I'm saying we need to stay down, you know, in the dirt and, you know, and just constantly be, you know, have an attitude of, of, of being berated spiritually. We're not being condemned. No, we rejoice in what God has done. But we have to focus upon what He has done, His sacrifice, not what we, as I often say, bring, bring to the table. In this case, we studied that Christ was the fulfillment of the law, and we talked about the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. Now, specifically with the judicial and ceremonial law, He fulfilled that. He completed that. He put, a, put an end to that, whereas the moral law, as we know, which we, when we talk about, we're talking about primarily the Ten Commandments, that remains valid. Uh, the requirements don't disappear. God's law is God's law. And you won't find anything that deviates from that in the New Testament, only apart from, you know, the Sabbath day, you know, worshiping on the Sabbath day. And God's law is very much in effect. That's a problem that we're having right now in our country, when this, this uh, as, it's, as it's referred to, the Judeo-Christian ethic is being departed from, when there's no longer a foundation, when we can't go to that anymore. Was, our community group met Friday, and we were, uh, I gave them some statistics about divorce and so forth as we're looking at family and family-related issues. We will be in our community group and I stumbled across a statistic where it said starting in 2020, uh, when they do the census, now they will include same-sex marriages in the national statistics. They will include that. So we look about and we see things changing for the worse, and we know that that will continue. I shared our verse with you for this morning. I'll share it again. Matthew 5.18 where he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. We are a church that believes the Word of God. We, we rest, as it says, upon the original autographs. As close as we can get in their preservation. I'm going to give you some interesting information about that in just a moment. But isn't it it's something right here? We stop and look at what Christ says. Not one, you can pick a word, you know, one translation, you see jot and tittle. Okay, I guess that meant something to people in 1500. <coughs> Even I can hear my mama saying, I don't care one iota about that. Now, my mama didn't know what an iota was. But I knew, I knew what she meant. Okay, in her mind, it was this little small thing. Probably something you sweep up, you know, and throw away. But it is an actual word. First, though, he says, he gets the attention of the hearer by saying truly, which again is just that word, amen. That's what, that's what the word is. But it is a term of strong and intense affirmation. And Christ gets the attention of the hearer by throwing that word out there, truly, or sometimes you see it, truly, truly, or in some translations, verily, verily. But it's something that's absolute. It's something that w- that's without qualification, as the definition says. Our fullest 
authority. This is what they heard. <coughs> so they know that what follows is going to be very important. And what follows, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, he sets the scene. And that's simply a phrase that deals with the end of time as we know it. And it speaks of permanency. Of permanency. This is something that's going to happen. It, in the mind of God, it has already happened. But he talks about the fact that people look about at the creation and see how wonderful that is because there's a, a huge testimony of God in creation. He says that's going to pass away, that is you know it. The Scriptures talk about that quite a bit. And he uses this to heighten the meaning of what he's trying to get across to them. For instance, in Psalm 102, beginning in verse 25, it says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, talking about God, and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. The psalmist knew that. Isaiah knew that. Lift up your eyes to the sky. Isaiah 51.6 Then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation, he says, will be forever. The voice of God. And my righteousness will not wane. It's God's Word that's going to survive. Everything else will pass away. Jesus will say it later in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And of course, Jesus there, as we look ahead, He's equating His own words with the Word of God, or as the Word of God. He says, my words will not pass away. Not just couched in the Old Testament Scriptures. This is the comparison. This is what's going to happen. This is what we offer the world. Stability. Truth. It's found in the Word of God. And the closer we as individuals or we as a country move away from that foundation, we invite havoc in our life. We invite havoc in our nation. We can expect it. We don't know what God's timetable is, but we know that He's true to that. He's true to that. The Old Testament is the Word of God. Christ never brought that into question. His teaching in all of the New Testament is the Word of God. It is eternal. It is inerrant. An inerrant revelation of Almighty God. It talks about His eternal plan for all time. It talks about man and it talks about what He has done with all of creation. You find it in the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12. We look at one more verse. For the Word of God is living. This is a characteristic of the truth. It is living and active. It moves. It's not stagnant. It causes action when we consider it. It's living and active. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And that would have been, to the hearer then, that would have been words of judgment. A two-edged sword associated with judgment. It does bring judgment, does it not? Are you to the point in your Christian life, I've asked you this before, where you welcome 
that two-edged sword in your life? Do you welcome that? Do you understand it for what it is? That it's God bringing His Word to bear on your life and particular issues in your life that ranges from everything from our thoughts to our words down to our actions, as I I add, even our neglects in life, the things that we don't do, that everything, as He says, must be brought into subjection to God. Do we welcome that? The closer we see Him as our Savior and our Lord, the easier it is for us to warm up to that. And we receive that for what it is. This is the hand of God guiding us in our life. This is His Word, though it be convicting, of protecting us, of opening our eyes to help us see a little bit about what's down the road if we're not changed. If our sanctification, as we call it, doesn't continue to progress. And that's a lifelong process for all of us. He speaks of this two-edged sword. Let me finish the verse. He says it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. I mean, it gets right down to our feelings. It gets right down to those things that are so deep within us that we can't seem to find the words to express them. The Word of God, if we compare it, if we bring our thoughts, every word, if we bring it under subjection to Him, will reveal the truth to us. There's nothing else in creation that will do that. Nothing. That right there ought to endear us to the Word of God and make it precious to us. Because the Word of God and the Word alone has the power to change. First and foremost, for salvation. Being born of the Word. Coming to Christ based on the knowledge of His Word. Which speaks of our guilt before Him. But it speaks also of the grace that's been imparted to the person who comes in faith and repentance. We welcome that. And then it continues to minister to us in our life. In every situation. What else about this verse? Well... He says, uh, he says the smallest letter, that of course is the Greek word iota, and it's just that, it's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And he says it's, it's not going to change. Think about that. You mean, since it was given, the Old Testament forward, none of it has changed. It is absolute truth. And particularly the way it was pinned and put down the first, the first time, It's not going to change. There's nothing else like that in existence. Nothing. That's the Word of God. He uses the word stroke, the smallest letter or stroke, which is the Greek word karei, karei. And that actually means little horn. And it's a reference to the smallest mark, the very smallest mark that's used to distinguish one Hebrew word from another. And not knowing Hebrew, I can't imagine what that is. But it's as simple as this. You see one word, but it has this little mark here. Then you see the word again, but it has a little mark down here. It means something else. It means something else. He says none of that, that smallest mark is not going to change. And I didn't add, but I'll add now back to the smallest letter. The Hebrew equivalent of that is Yoda. Don't you find that interesting? <laughs> now, Steven Spielberg is Jewish. Now, you can't tell wasn't thinking about that when he made that little critter. Okay, little Yoda. All right. A little play on words there, I guess. <coughs> so this is really, this is marvelous. 
marvelous. <coughs> when I was <coughs> privileged to, to teach in the His Steps program over there once a week, uh, I had three or four uh, studies that I taught. One, of course, was uh, Tale of Two Sons, and uh, we talked about license to kill, talking about killing sin in our life and so forth, and talked about you know the 11 uh, points from 1 John of true that point to true Christianity. We taught that. But I only used one video out of all that. I had one video that I used, and I think maybe I've mentioned it to you before. It's, uh, it's actually a video from a MacArthur sermon. It was his sermon where he was concluding teaching on the book of Mark. Well, when he concluded that teaching on the book of Mark, that also marked his completion of teaching through the entire New Testament. And it took him 41 years, I think, or something like that, 42 years to teach. So it was quite a, uh, a mark, you know, in his ministry in the life of that particular church. But what I found fascinating about that sermon, and it's more like a, just a, uh, a teaching segment, is how he goes into how we got the Word of God and how we see the Holy Spirit not only providing the Word of God, as we know is the case, but how the Word of God was preserved. It's very, very interesting. So if you'll allow me, I've pulled some of that information to share with you. Has anybody ever heard that message? It's called a fitting end to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jeff's heard it before. But I found that, that compilation of, of materials there about how we got the Word of God really something I think every Christian should know and consider. Let me share some of these with you. Of course, we know that the Bible record comes from texts that we have discovered, right? In antiquity, it comes from ancient texts. The Holy Spirit is the author. The Holy Spirit is the preserver of Scripture. And we can look at it from a practical standpoint and see that clearly. All was copied by hand until when? You know your history? When did the printing press come about? 1500s. So everything prior to that was copied by hand. Oh, there could have been errors. Well, there, there were some errors. But the good thing is, you know when those errors occurred. You can compare back to the original or the, the oldest text that we have. And when you see something else, well, you know, it was added, right? You know, that was put in there. It's added. But here's the thing. There's over 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Did you realize that? Over 25,000. And we can use these and do use these to compare and to get the meaning, to find the truth. And we see that. And what's amazing is how they all virtually say the same thing. We see how God has provided that and protected that. Then you had the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what, 1946, 47-ish? There was a process there of unearthing things. Once again, you get some clarity. You had, what was that, parts of Isaiah and I think parts of the Gospel of John and some other things. So we have that. Then you've got 5,000 or over 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that date all the way back to the second century. We have those. Now I'm getting to a point with all this. Be, be thinking about these numbers as we go along. But nothing, nothing in history compares 
to the Bible and the Word of God as far as its preservation. We'll see that clearly in a minute. Now, they name these pieces of ancient material that they find. One's called P-52. It's a manuscript. It dates all the way back around eight, uh, 100 to 150 A.D. And it has parts of the Gospel of John. Let me rattle through some of these. There's a, a document called the Bodmer Pyri, which is John and Luke. That dates back to 175 to 225. You have what they refer to as the Chester Beatty Pyri, which is the four Gospels and Acts. It goes all the way back to the 200s. And then in 325, if you know your history again, that's when Constantine you know, comes to power in Rome. He legalizes Christianity. So when that happened, then all of a sudden you start getting all this plethora of writings and so forth. Just floods the system, as it were. And we have a lot of that that survived. There are 8,000 copies of the New Testament in Latin. You know what the name of that is, right? The Latin Vulgate. Okay, they date from 382 to 405. There are 350 copies of the Bible in Syriac, going back to the 200s. Prior to the Council of Nicaea, which Constantine brought about, where he brought all those bishops together, and you have the Nicene Creed coming out of that, and you know, the um, tenets of the faith at that time were put on paper. You have that occurring. So out of that, all the writings amongst the church fathers just continues to flourish. And he says even to the point there were 32,000 quotes out of those writings that survived. And from those 32,000 quotes, it said they can recreate the entire New Testament. That's how much of that writing was going on at that time. Amazing information. And out of that, over 19,000 of those quotes came from the Gospels alone. What is the second most common document from antiquity? Which one has survived the longest compared to Scripture? Scripture's number one. Do you know what number two is? I know you know. (laughs) The Iliad, Homer's Iliad. Did you have to read the Iliad and the Odyssey in school? Okay, and this is really interesting because this kind of helps bring the point home. In other words, next to the New Testament, there are no copies of Homer's Iliad than other... I wanted to get that right. There are more copies of Homer's Iliad than any other ancient piece of literature. Do you know how many of them there are? 643. The Bible's number one with thousands and thousands and thousands. And the next piece of work in history, if that serves to get your attention from a practical standpoint, is this Homer's Iliad. Now, not only that, the oldest copy of Homer's Iliad is from the 13th century A.D. When did Homer write? 8th century B.C. And I love what MacArthur says. He said, we don't know if any of that's true. (laughs) But people want to look at these things from a practical standpoint. Who can deny that the Word of God has not been preserved throughout history? And this is God's doing as He's intervened in the affairs of men. And I don't know the nature of Constantine's heart. I don't know what his purpose was in legalizing Christianity 
it said that he was a Christian. I don't know what that meant for him. I'd have to sit down and talk to him. It's just like I saw a bumper sticker just yesterday that said, Just believe! And I looked a little closer and underneath there was a picture of Sasquatch on the box. (laughs) So believe in what? Believe in what? Scripture has been preserved for us. And this is the work This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Biblical scholar A.T. Robertson, he refers to, he says, the vast array of manuscripts has enabled textual scholars to accurately reconstruct the original text with more than than 99.9% accuracy. And we know that that science of textual criticism is called lower criticism when you're studying and you see that. An embarrassment of riches? Yes. Yeah, by far. Well, it's amazing. And you know, you say you throw out these, as I say, these, this practical information about Scripture, and that should get our attention. But you know, that's not what serves to convince people in full about Christ and about the Scripture itself. It's always a work of God. It's always a work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And it comes about as we respond to the truth of God's Word. Respond how? Well, obviously, initially, to respond regarding our own need for Christ, our own need for a Savior. Nobody's going to come and say, well, Lord, you know, I choose to believe because there were 25,000 copies. Okay, that's not the way it works. We choose to believe because the Spirit of God has landed His Word upon our heart. It's dealing with us individually and we respond from that perspective but this is certainly encouraging to us and it does reveal God's hand and not only providing but preserving the word of God in our focal verse he says none of this is going to happen and he speaks of until let me read it specifically lest I forget it here he says when he says the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The Greek word genomia, which means uh, to become or to become and to take place. He says it's a time set, set in the future when these things, talking about the earth passing away, heaven and earth passing, all those things are going to happen only to be replaced by a new one. But the word of God is not going to pass away. It's not going to pass away. So regarding Christ's fulfillment and accomplishment of the law, author Pink states, he says, rather than his teaching being submersive, talking about the teaching of Christ about the law, he says they confirmed and enforced it. So why didn't the people there just believe? When they actually asked for an explanation and Christ gave them an explanation, why did they not say, oh, I see. Why didn't they do that? Yeah, what was missing, yeah. That's it. It's what we alluded to earlier. It's amazing how we hear what we want to hear, isn't it? Or something that causes or calls for change or certainly something that calls for confession in our life. I mean, after all, when you're talking about the 
the Jewish leaders there, you're talking about the rug, the religious rug, if you will, being totally pulled out from under them. This is what so this is what gives such validity, if you will, even to the testimony of the disciples after Christ, because these these were good Jewish folks for the most part. But man, they changed, didn't they? Even to the point of being willing to give up their life because of what they knew to be true. That transformation is no no less imperative for you and I. You know? That's why Jesus told Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen and handled, and you've you've literally been exposed to something that, that feeds that part of your faith. He said, that's, that's why you believe. But he said, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And Thomas knew instantly he had to rely upon the truth of God's Word. Not just the miraculous. If Jesus just came through the wall, would that cause anybody to believe? No. We make these comparisons from time to time for the purpose of focusing us back upon what the truth of God's Word is doing in our heart right now. That's what we must respond to. You follow what I'm saying? Lazarus came out of the grave. Remember? Just a few verses later, they're plotting to kill Jesus. And then a few verses after that, they're plotting to kill Lazarus. Arguably the greatest miracle that we see, a man four days dead, all the other things that he did. The Word of God must be received. It must be believed. There must be commitment like the old farmers say, you just put all your eggs in that basket. You put them all in there because of the depth and quality of your belief. Jesus referred to the Old Testament at least 64 times. And when He did, it was always to uh, support the authority and the truth of the Old Testament. Never anything different. He defends His Messiahship and His divinity before the unbelieving Jews in John's Gospel, if you go to chapter 10, verse 35, because there he states plainly, he says the Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. He told the folks, if you'd believe God, you would believe me. If you believe Moses, he said, you would believe me rather, because he wrote about me, he says. Over and over again, Jesus confirmed the accuracy and the authenticity of the Old Testament. I like going to the story in Luke, Luke 16, and you know the story with the, the rich man who fared sumptuously, as it says in one translation. Occupants, occupant living, and he died. It says in the story that he could look over and, and he could see an old beggar that he knew, Lazarus, over there being comforted in the arms of Abraham. Now he gets concerned. First off, he wants something to be done about his scorched tongue. He says, I'm tormented in this flame. Send Lazarus over here and have him just dip his hand in some water and put it on my tongue just to intensify the agony that he's going through. That would be a comfort to him, something that small. No, he can't come over there, Abraham says. You're there, he's here. Then what does he say? Let me paraphrase the parable. He says, well, i got five brothers. He said, send him back to them. And what does the Word tell us? What does it tell us? He says, and this is Abraham answering in the parable, he says, no, they have Moses and the prophets, your five brothers. Let them hear Him, Moses. 
to hear the gospel, to hear the truth, to hear about how to avoid coming to that awful, awful place that we know as hell. Moses and the prophets. And then you hear this, you get this very, very earthly, worldly thinking, right? He says, no. But if someone were to go, having risen from the dead, then they would believe. So is that true? No. That ain't true. What's the response? And again, Christ uh, telling the story. What's the response? If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, this is Luke 16, 31, they will not be persuaded if someone be raised from the dead. This is what we can never get away from when we consider the Word of God. It is an extremely personal and intimate experience. It will always involve us and our reaction to what God is doing in our life through His Word. Right? Always. We can't come with a group, as a group. We can't come genuinely, and I'm not talking physically. We may get up with others and go if they're genuine. But we can't rest on that. We can't be included in the throng. As it's often been said, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He just has children, right? And it's always as a result of what we've done with His Word. We've allowed that Word to make its impression Upon us is nothing else. Whether it's about whether it's convicting us of our sin and our need for Christ, or other confessions in our life that are hindering us in our walk with Christ, taking strength, spiritual strength out of our life. And this is all we have to offer back to God is our obedience. So anything that hinders that needs to be dealt with. And God does that through the power of His Word and through the power of His Spirit, this Word which will never, ever pass away. When I was privileged to share with the church after my ordination, I remember it was after Easter, and I went to those passages in Luke 24, you know, the road to Emmaus and so forth, and used that verse from chapter 24, verse 27 as a a springboard in going back and looking at the Word of God about Christ in the Old Testament because there in that verse 27 of Luke 24, it says as Jesus was walking with those two, it says, then beginning with Moses, again, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all Scripture. That's a pretty comprehensive verse. It kind of brings this together for us. And what's the amazing thing about that? What's the human response to these two who were longing in their heart to know the truth as they turned to one another after Christ had disappeared out of their their sight? They said this, and I hope you can identify with this. They said, did our hearts not burn within us as He opened up the Scriptures to us? Have you had that experience? When the Word of God comes to bear on your heart, over any particular matter. We can continue to have that experience after salvation when God through His Spirit gives us His Word to give us direction in our life. And we, we all of a sudden again realize I am His child. He's involved in my life. He's answering my prayer. He's giving me clear direction here. And even in those times when the, the voice is, is mucked, can't hear clearly because all he wants us to do is move on what we do know. 
He wants us to demonstrate the kind of faith that Abraham had, where you take that first step and you don't know where you're going, you've just been told to go. And you've been assured that He will be with you. We trust Him because His Word is valid. His Word is true. Jesus used Old Testament Scripture to rebuff Satan when he was tempted in the desert. He pulls verses from Deuteronomy 8, chapter 6, on two occasions when he talks about man not living by bread alone and not tempting the Lord your God and worshiping the Lord your God and serving Him only. Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy and throws that word at Satan during His temptation. He declared his Messiahship back in his hometown in Nazareth. You know the story from Luke 4. And in verses 18 and 19, he quotes from Isaiah 61.1, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel. Pardon me, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recover of this, uh, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He draws that from Isaiah and presents it to those hearers there in his hometown. And in essence, declaring himself, I don't think they got it right then, but declaring himself as Messiah. He went further with them and laid out the issues that that should have convicted their heart as he talked about a couple of Gentiles who had more faith than they had when he talked about Naaman. Remember the Syrian general who had leprosy who responded in faith and he talked about the widow of Zarephath. They didn't like that. What was their response to the word of God in their heart was to throw him over a cliff. What do we do with the Word of God when it touches our heart. That's exactly, exactly, that is specifically what we will give an account of one day. We'll give an account of that. Jesus used Old Testament Scripture to encourage John the Baptist. We know the story. He encouraged John with the Word of God from the Old Testament. Jesus cleansed the temple. and He said, is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a robber's den. Jesus moved on the validity of Old Testament Scriptures. Why do we believe His Word? And I'll close. Quite simply, because it's the Word of God that opens up our hearts for salvation. It opens up our heart. James 1.21 says the Word implanted he refers to it as that which is able to save your souls first and foremost. We honor the Word of God. We honor it. We give honor to it. The psalmist, the psalmist says in 119.103, How sweet are thy words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's prized. A quote from... Spurgeon, he says, it were better to break stones on a road than to be a preacher unless God had given the Holy Spirit to sustain him. The heart and soul of man who speaks for God will know no ease for the hearers in his ears, for he hears in his ears that warning admonition. If the watchman warn them not, they perish, but their blood will I require at the watchman's hands. 
is the infallible revelation of the infallible Jehovah to be moderated, to be shaped, to be toned down to the fancies and fashions of the hour? This is Spurgeon asking this question. Sounds like a question should be asked today, right? God forbid, he says, God forbid if we alter the Word of God. God forbid. And then thirdly, we're to obey it much in the Word of God. Read the Gospel of John, Epistles of John, about obeying the Word of God. We must defend it as I come to a close here. And we must proclaim it. We must proclaim the Word of God. And what did I mark? I marked um, in closing here, 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, through 5, where Paul is speaking to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom. And here's the command. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, Will be a, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's not just to preachers. We all have a witness We all have a testimony of what Christ has done in our heart and life. And I pray that it will be our desire today to respond and in the week to come to be an ambassador of Christ and of His Word in this world that we live in. Let's pray together.